Last week, Matt set up a podcast, a live podcast, right? And it's working tonight? No, I figured it would wait until we get to the proper equipment. Denise called and said she saw the podcast and said it was a little bit difficult to uh, hear it. So we're waiting until we get a new camera so we can continue our podcast. Any of you still have your Christmas lights up? We do. Jeffrey put them up. Jeffrey's going to take them down. So one of these days, he says he's going to do it, hopefully very soon. There's a story of a family who kept their lights up for a long time, and the neighborhood association was getting mad. The neighbors were getting mad. And they were on all the way through March. So that was a long time. The neighbors getting kind of wondering why they're lighting them every night months after Christmas. They found out that they had kept the lights on because their son from Vietnam was to show up at any time. They had a big sign that said, Welcome home, Jimmy. They didn't know when he was coming, but they knew he was coming, and he would like to see the Christmas lights, and that's why they left him on. They had hope that Jimmy would enjoy the lights. And we're going to talk about hope for the holidays. Remember, we were supposed to do this passage last week, another one from the week before. So this is my holiday messages and for New Year's as well. And we're talking about hope. Last week we talked about hope being born in Bethlehem. Jesus came, he brought hope and removed fears. Today we're going to look at biblical hope. So I hope you all have new outlines and give them out as we look at the hope. There are many people in the world today whose lives are simply filled with hopelessness. Attitude becomes really apparent during the holidays. Those who are by themselves, don't have any children, don't have any relatives, no friends, or by themselves. Usually the holidays is a really difficult time for them. But they need to realize that Bible gives us hope. Now hope is the firm reality or firm assurance or certainty that something's going to happen. It's not wishful thinking. Every year I hope the Tigers will win the World Series. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a certainty. It's an assurance. It's going to happen. We hope for heaven. It doesn't mean we hope we make it to heaven. We hope that we know we are going to make it to heaven. And that's what biblical hope is. The firm assurance that we are going to go to heaven. And biblical hope is more than just a desire or a wish. It's grounded upon the word of God. The promises that God made. So let's look at some things about hope today. We'll be going through our Bibles, looking up some verses, talking about them. As we talk about what really biblical hope is compared to what the world believes. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for your word. And Lord, we realize that you have given us hope, the hope of salvation. Again, it's not a wish. It's not something we hope is going to happen. It's something we know is going to happen. And we're going to see in many different ways you describe biblical hope in your word today then will give us hope for the future those may be here who are having difficulties with physical needs or financial needs personal needs they'll realize Lord there is hope a certainty that you will fulfill your promises to us help me as I teach your word Lord fill us all with your spirit to accept it and apply it we ask this in Christ's name amen let's look at Psalm 16 verse 9 we're going to go through the Bible. This is what they call a Bible, uh, word study. When you're in college, Bible college, you have word studies that give you a word. And you look up all the references to where you find it in the Bible, and you write something about what the verse says. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a word study in the word hope. Let's look at Psalm chapter 16, verse 9. Let's see what it says about hope. <clears throat> I got a Bible here of sticky pages. Hold on. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. New American Standard has the word dwell securely. The King James, New King James, has the word rest in hope. The word means to dwell, means to settle. The word secure means safety, security. And here we see hope is a product of our commitment to God. And a lack of hope results in lack of commitment. So we have a restful hope. We can dwell securely in the hope that God's word provides for us. 
Now, the world doesn't give us much hope, right? Read the paper, look in the news, nothing but problems. We're going to have nuclear war with Korea, right? The economy's going bad. So all kinds of terrorism going on in the world. There's no hope for the world. Well, yes, there is. We have a restful hope. We have a great hope. And we commit ourselves to the Lord. And we can rest in it. We're secure in our thoughts that God is in control and nothing's going to happen apart from his will. So we have what we call a restful hope. Look at Psalm 71, verse 14. Psalm 71, verse 14. Okay, I know I can get it here. There we go. But as for me, I will hope continually, I will praise you yet more and more. Here we see we have a continual hope. The word continually means perpetually, continually. It's going to happen. We should always have hope in the Lord. It's a continual hope. But sometimes our hope fades, doesn't it, when something bad happens? But we should have a continual hope. Here the psalmist shows honor for God by continually hoping for God's help. <clears throat> and we always hope for God's help. And is God going to help us? It's certain, yes. He may not help us the way we want him to help us. Remember Paul had a thorn in the flesh? When God do something, God says, don't worry, Paul, I got under control. My grace is sufficient for you, and I'll take care of it. <clears throat> Just hope in me. Trust in me. So it's a continual hope. It never runs out. We always have this hope. Look at Psalm 119, verse 116. Psalm 119, verse 116. Sustain me according to your word that I may live. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Our hope is a shameless hope. We should never be ashamed of God. We should never be ashamed that we place our hope in God. The word ashamed conveys the idea to feel shame or to be ashamed. And we should never be ashamed of God. We should never be ashamed of what God has done for us. Remember, Peter was ashamed at the fire. Christ was being this trial. So I know you, Peter, you were with him. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. He was ashamed of him. We should never be ashamed of God and God's word. We should be proud to say, yes, I'm a Christian, and I trust God, and I believe in his word. So we have a shameless hope. <clears throat> See, spring, sin brings doubt, right? And doubt destroys hope. We should never doubt in God's word. If sin can defile our conduct, it will try doubt. One of Satan's greatest tools is the tool of doubt. That's why in Ephesians 6, what are we told to do? Take up the shield of faith. It quenches the fiery darts of doubt that Satan throws at us and sends our way. <clears throat> Never be ashamed of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Never be ashamed to say, I'm, I'm a Christian. But in today's world, media beats up on Christians, doesn't it? <clears throat> but we never should be ashamed of Christ. Never be ashamed of my hope is in God. Let's go to Job chapter 8. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> Job chapter 8, verse 13. Here we see a false hope. Job chapter 8, verse 13. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the godless will perish. <clears throat> the English word hope carries uncertainty with it. And I hope this is going to happen. But the biblical word for hope contains no uncertainty. It speaks as if something is certain but not yet realized. We hope we're going to heaven that the certainty has not yet been realized because we're not in heaven yet, but we will be when we die. And where does this hope come from? Look at Romans 15, verse 4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. The scripture it comes from the word of God. Because it says, for whatever was written earlier times is written for our instructions, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. There's no such thing as a false hope with believers. It's a false hope in the world, but never with believers. God is the source of eternal hope, life, and salvation. 
He is the object of our hope. So there's a restful hope, continual hope, a shameless hope, a false hope that we should never have. There's also another hope that does not disappoint us. Look at Romans, if you're still there. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 5. Romans 5, 5. It says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Here we see our hope does not disappoint us. King James says the word of shame, which is very similar to what we read before. Again, it means the same thing to put to shame, to dishonor, disgrace. Our hope in God would never disappoint us. It's never a disgrace to believe in God. <clears throat> so we have confidence in God. Let's, let's back up a few verses. Notice what it says in verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's the gospel message about being saved through Christ. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. We exult in our confidence in God's message and God's glory. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character, hope. And the hope does not disappoint us. So the believer glories in hope and in suffering, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance, and perseverance brings proven character, or our example of a Christian living a Christian life, and proven character brings hope. And this hope will never make us ashamed of God. So it's not a disappointment. Hope is not an illusion. It's a certain thing. And we should never be disappointed about what God allows in our lives. And sometimes we are, aren't we? We hope one thing's going to happen, it doesn't, something else happens, and we sort of get kind of upset, don't we? So then we're having the wrong kind of biblical hope, don't we? We hope something good's going to happen. But when it doesn't, then we get kind of upset. <clears throat> That's not the kind of hope we should have. Whatever God allows into our life should never disappoint us, because God is in control. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We already looked at it. It talks about the, the hope, the glory of God, the hope of the glory of God. We are to exalt in it. Look at chapter 12, verse 12 of Romans. Romans 12, 12, 12. We are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So here we see we are to have a joyful hope. Look at chapter 15 of Romans, verse 13, 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will be abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing hopeless about the Christian experience or the Christian life. <clears throat> I remember talking to one person. They said their son and marriage partner were having difficulties. That was Becky's mom. She called up and said, you know, they're having problems and it's a hopeless situation. That's what she told Becky. And I told Becky, there's never a hopeless situation with God, is there? Never. You never say this is a hopeless situation. <clears throat> we would have a joyful hope. The God of hope is both the one who gives hope and is the object of that hope. It's called the God of hope. Our hope is in God. God who knows everything from the end to the beginning because he's planned everything. The result of our hope in God is joy and peace abounds through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the word abounds means to overflow. Because we believe in the God of hope, our joy and our peace should abound. <clears throat> we should never worry about tomorrow. Because we know God's going to take care of us. Our joy and our peace abounds because of the God of hope. <clears throat> Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness. This is salvation. We are already experiencing the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ when we get saved. Jesus gives us his righteousness. Here it's talking about the completed perfect righteousness we will get when we have our glorified bodies. The hope of righteousness. 
<clears throat> the certainty that one day when we get to heaven we'll be clothed in his righteousness completely. We'll have a new glorified body. And if you getting sick and tired of your old body, wake up every day with the same aches and pains, wishing you were 20 or 30 again, the day's going to come, we're going to wake up in heaven, and we'll be having brand new glorified bodies. That's the hope of righteousness. <clears throat> we'll have complete righteousness, the hope of him. Faith has the hope in Jesus. Is <clears throat> the idea here in Galatians 5.5 5 is, some are counting on their hope and righteousness in circumcision or in works. That's what Paul is talking about in the first few verses. They're talking about circumcision. <clears throat> because verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor non-circumcision means anything but faith working through love. There's no hope of righteousness in our works. If we're hoping to get to heaven because of our good works, there is no righteousness. We're not going to be righteous because we do certain things. We are righteous because we accepted Christ as our Savior. So Paul is comparing true righteousness with counterfeit righteousness. Because that's the problem in Galatians was people were being circumcised. Judaizers was coming in telling the Jews who got saved, you got to go back to Moses' law. You got to be circumcised. You got to do all these things. And Paul says, no, you don't. <clears throat> we have the hope of righteousness, having a righteous life, glorified body in heaven. You know that glorified body is going to be like Jesus' body? Remember Jesus' body appeared through doors and all that? What a wonderful body we're going to have. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Here we see we have a steadfast hope. King James has the word patient, NIV has the word endurance. That's what steadfast means, patience, endurance, perseverance. This is the ability to remain under. <clears throat> and trials hit us and tribulations and problems we have patience to endure it because we hope in God because we're certain that God's going to see us through this trial or this tribulation whatever we're going through this hope has to do with the return of Jesus just look at verse 10 to wait for the son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come Paul is commending these Thessalonian believers in verse 3 talking about their work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to return. So they're faithfully serving Christ in the midst of all kinds of trials and tribulations and persecutions. So we need to have a steadfast hope. Their hope was patient. You know anybody who's impatient? Just stop at a traffic light and don't go right when the light turns green. Sit there for four or five seconds. What happens? Honk, you know, beeping. <clears throat> there's a lot of impatient drivers out there, and I'm one of them. So you stay away from me when I'm driving, because there's some people who are impatient. You know, I get caught by something, and I'm five seconds late, and the light turns red, and I get caught by a light that so-and-so hadn't jumped out in front of me. I would have made the light, you know? We're impatient. There's too many impatient people, especially Christians. should never be impatient. We need to wait on God's timing. Their hope was patient, steadfast. We need to have a steadfast hope, steadfast patience in God. Knowing that God's going to take care of everything. <clears throat> Look at chapter 4, verse 13, the first Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 13. It says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. He's talking about the rapture here. Those who already died, asleep refers to death for the Christian. Always when you see the word asleep in scriptures, the New Testament refers to the death of a believer. Because a believer falls asleep and wakes up in heaven, in God's presence. <clears throat> so death for a Christian is like falling asleep. It says, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. He's talking about unbelievers here. <clears throat> Those who have no hope. Those who die without Christ have no hope. There is an unrelenting hopelessness experienced by a non-believer with respect to death. That's one commentator put it. 
I told you before, when I was in Hawthorne, little towns, one square mile, have one mortician in it, people are dying all the time, and, and Harry was his name, and he asked me if I'd help him with a number of his funerals. A lot of people didn't go to church. So when someone died without a pastor, he said, would you come and give the message? I remember doing one message, and the casket was laying there in front, and the lady, was, the wife was just screaming and wailing. She literally jumped on the casket when they started to roll it out. It looked kind of comical to me, but still, that's the, the hopelessness of the situation. That's how she felt. Her loved one's going away and there's nothing she can do about it. It's hopeless. <clears throat> so Paul wanted the Thessalonian believers to know the truth that they should never grieve that way. Because your loved one has just fallen asleep. And one day you'll see him in heaven. But not only that, you may go to heaven without dying. And Paul then talks about the rapture there. The Lord will return with a shout and a trumpet and a voice from heaven. And you'll be gone and meet the Lord in the air. <clears throat> the, the Christians are not to be like the heathen who have no hope. And there's a lot of people in the world who have no hope. <clears throat> so we do have hope. Let's look at the next one. Oh, hold on. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 Now may our here's, Paul's giving a prayer <clears throat> Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word Here we see the God of good hope by grace Here's a description of our salvation that gives us hope by grace. We are redeemed, we have eternal comfort, and we have good hope based on the grace of God. And what's God's grace? He gives us something we don't deserve. We have hope. <clears throat> you know, around the bottom part of Africa is called the Cape of Good Hope. You know how it got that name? When Portuguese explorer Bartholomew Diaz came around the southern tip of Africa, he found the sea so rough that he called it the Cape of Storms. Afraid that the name would scare away future explorers, the king of Portugal changed the name to the Cape of Good Hope. The big difference, isn't it? No. Again, wishful thinking by the world. But here we have God as a God of good hope. God will take care of us. <clears throat> it's a good hope. We have eternal comfort and good hope because of God's grace. We can count on him to do what's best for us. It's a good hope. Look at 1 Timothy 1.1. Here we see the basis of our hope. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope? Our hope rests in God, our Savior, and in Jesus Christ. We have hope for the future because Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross. And we have hope for the future as well because God, he promises to take care of us and take us to heaven. <clears throat> so what was the foundation of Paul's hope? It was Jesus Christ. What's man's, the unsaved man's foundation for hope? Many things. They hope money will make them happy. They go out drinking and get drunk. They take drugs. They get involved in extramarital affairs or immorality. They, they hope all this stuff will bring them satisfaction, but it doesn't. <clears throat> Men tried many substitutes, but all substitutes will eventually disappoint. You leave out Jesus, there's no hope for the future. So the basis for our hope is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 13. We talked about this last week. The blessed hope. Let's start at verse 11. It says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. <clears throat> Here we see the emphasis is on Christ coming back. But notice in this passage, from verse 11 through verse 14, we see the emphasis moves from the incarnation to the second coming of Jesus Christ. He calls this the blessed hope. Verse 11 is the incarnation, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming to the world to die on the cross for our sins. <clears throat> and so now we see <clears throat> him coming again to take us to heaven, the blessed hope. And notice how Paul's always talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Timothy 6.14. Turn back a few pages. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 14. It says, As you may keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I was always talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting, look at John 1.14, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> well, we'll start at verse 1 because it gives us the context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is described as the living Word. Now look at verse 14. And the word was, became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we saw his glory, glory as others, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the incarnation, Jesus' coming was filled with grace. We go back to Titus chapter 2. Here we see his coming, his glorious appearing, is the fullness of glory. Verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus' first coming in his incarnation was fullness of grace, providing salvation. We don't deserve it, but he gave it to us anyhow. When he returns again, there'll be the fullness of glory. We'll have his glorified body. We'll go to heaven. We'll have his glorified body. This is Revelation chapter 19. When he returns in glory. So we have the blessed hope. Jesus is going to return. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. Look at verse 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. For we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Here we see a firm hope. Our hope is to be firm. Believers are now of God's household. So we're now believers, right? Children of God. We're adopted into God's family. We are now of God's household. But to enjoy that position requires they hold fast to their mornings. Or their moorings, which means God's word. We've got to hold fast in the God. We are not to doubt and give up. That was the promise. So many Christians... And the letter to Hebrews is going back to Judaism. And the writer's encouraging them to stay with Jesus Christ. That's what he talks about in chapters 9 and 10. The old sacrifices didn't save anybody. But so many people were deserting the faith. <clears throat> That's why he talks about chapter 11, the book of faith. All these are Christians or all these believers who did not go back to Judaism. <clears throat> You're of a different household now, a new household. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. What does he say? For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. He's not talking about people losing their salvation. He's looking about people who are never saved that give up and go back to something they think is better. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. <clears throat> Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For you promised us faithful. So many so-called believers were giving up. This is not speaking about how to be saved or remain saved. 
It means the perseverance of our faithfulness is proof of our real faith. Because we continue to hold on and not give up is a proof that we're still a believer. If you're not a believer, you're going to give up. The person who returns to the rituals of the Levitical system to contribute to his own salvation proves he was never truly part of God's household. So Hebrews isn't teaching that people can lose their salvation. No. Some of those who were never saved in the first place. And he who abides in Jesus gives evidence of his genuine membership in that household. God promises to bring it to pass. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Our salvation really doesn't depend upon us. A lot of people are deceived into thinking so. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. God saves us. We're saved forever. Don't be wishy-washy and think that something else is better. Remember James talks about those who are like waves of the seashore. They go back and forth. Don't know which one to decide. If you're wavering between God and something else, then you were never saved in the first place. Look at Jude 24. Jude 24 and 25. <clears throat> Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. God's promise to keep you saved forever is a certain firm promise. It's a firm hope. I've accepted him. Nothing else is better. I'm not going to be washy-washy and go to the new fad. So it's a firm hope. Look at chapter 6, verse 19 of Hebrews. We talked about this last week. It's also a sure hope. 6.19 says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus entered as a forerunner for us. So our, we have this hope. Go back to verse 18. What's verse 17? In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God's lie, and two unchangeable things, as we told you last week, is God's promise, the Abrahamic covenant, and God's oath. Those are two unchangeable things because God does not lie. He promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. The ultimate blessing is Jesus Christ. As Galatians tells us that. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. It's God's oath. <clears throat> so we have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So basically we have fled to God for as a refuge. And these two things were immutable because it's impossible for God to lie. God's promises and God's oath. God's word is certain and sure. It's trustworthy. We don't hope God's word is true. We know God's word is true. The assurance that the divine promises are true is a strong assurance. And this is demonstrated by an anchor. God's like an anchor. He holds us. He secures us. Through the storms of life, Jesus Christ is our anchor. God is our anchor. We should not be moved when the storms come and beat upon us. So this anchor holds the ship secure and Jesus is our anchor. We hope the anchor is going to hold means we know the anchor is going to hold. Storms may come, but the anchor holds the ship in place. So this anchor describes this place, a picture of strength and reliability. The word sure means secure and the word steadfast means stable. God is a source of stability in the seas of life. Circumstances may change, but we have a firm, unchanging hope. Circumstances may change, but our hope in God should never change. One more. 1 John chapter 3. 
1 John chapter 3. Starting verse 2. This is a hope that purifies us. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet. I'm sorry. And it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we, shall, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, what hope? That we're going to see Jesus in his glorified bodies? Purifies himself just as he, that is, Jesus is pure. See, our hope is not guesswork or wishful thinking that something's good going to happen, but it's confidence in something that will happen. The anticipation of the return of Jesus prompts us to improve our conduct, to live a holy life. The hope is the confidence of his return along with the blessings of a changed body. We know when Jesus returns, he's going to have a changed body, and we're going to have a body just like him. But I've never, but Paul says, we know what it's like, John says, because I've never seen a glorified person other than Jesus Christ. I haven't seen a glorified person yet, have you? Because you haven't been to heaven yet. So we don't know. But we know what Jesus is like, as scriptures tell us. He had a glorified body. So living in the reality of Jesus' return makes a difference in a Christian's behavior. Since we know that someday we will be like him, we should have a desire to be like him now. That's the idea of this passage. We're going to be like Jesus in our glorified bodies, but we should strive to be like him now. Like in Philippians, Paul talks about our citizenship is in heaven, and we're supposed to live like it now. That's what the Beatitudes are all about in the Gospel of Matthew. Kingdom living here and now. This is how we're going to be living the kingdom. You might as well live like it now, because you're going to be Christians. You're Christians. Live like you're living in heaven. So the idea here is, this future hope produces holy behavior. And a Christian who maintains his hope of being made righteous like Jesus will discipline himself to seek purity. Since you're going to be like Jesus, start living like him. What would Jesus do? To govern our life. How would Jesus respond to this? We get the word of God to help us to determine what's right and what's wrong. Are there really any gray areas in scripture? It's not going to be boiled down to right and wrong. There might be a few gray areas, but we should have a desire to be pure because we have this hope of this that should purify us. I know I'm going to be like Jesus one day, so I should live like him now today. Let's look at the benefits of hope. Turn to Peter, First Peter, if you will. Some of the benefits of our hope. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he came into a world that was without hope. And he brought hope. That's what we talked about last week. Hope was born in Bethlehem. Remember what we talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12? It gives us the contrast between the hopeless and the hopeful. Hopeless describes the condition of the sinner was having no hope and without God in this world. That's what Ephesians 2.12 talks about. We read that last week. That's the hopeless. They're without God in this world and they are hopeless. The hopeful described in, first, or in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23, talks about those who accept Christ as their Savior experience the hope of the gospel, which is a new life. Verse 27 of Colossians 1 talks about the Christ who is in you, the hope of glory. When we hear the gospel message and we get saved, we now have this hope in our life. It's no longer a hopeless person, but a hopeful person. And a hopeful person is certain that the gospel message is going to not only change his life here, but take him into heaven. And Paul, I'm sorry, Peter describes his hope in four ways. Number one, look at verse 3. Verse Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope. And this living hope is based upon what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus raised from the dead? So we have a living hope. Is Jesus alive today? Yes, he is. We have a living hope. 
Because Jesus lives, our future is guaranteed. So again, hope isn't just wishful thinking, but a firm conviction. A living hope is eternal life. One person says hope is confident optimism. Christians should never be pessimistic. We should always be optimistic. A confident optimism. Because we're hoping God. So we have a living hope. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. It means alert. It doesn't mean not being drunk. It means be alert. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we see a focused hope. Our hope is to be fixed. King James has hope to the end. New King James has the word set. So our Christian hope is to be fixed on the coming of Jesus Christ. How many times have we read that in scripture? About hope. The word fixed means to the end, perfectly, fully. It has implication of not wavering. It has the idea of unreserved hope of a perfect hope. Or hope with a perfect hope. Our hope is fixed that Jesus is going to return. Christians, especially those undergoing suffering, should unreservedly live for the future, anticipating the consummation of their salvation at the second coming of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Isn't that song, it'll be worth it all when we see Jesus? Yeah. And I should have picked that for the closing song today, right then. The grace that is brought to us refers to the final state of deliverance from sin when Jesus returns. See, God's grace keeps working in our lives, doesn't it? It just doesn't start at salvation. It ends at salvation. But God's grace continues to work through our life. 2 Corinthians 12 talks about Paul's grace. It's continually given to him. tells us that. So we have a living hope. We have a focused hope that's fixed on Jesus. Also, we have a secure hope. Look at verse 21. It says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope are in God. It's a secure hope. God has shown satisfaction in Jesus' work on the cross by raising him from the dead. That's the idea. Jesus' work of atonement and redemption satisfied God because God raised him from the dead. If God had not raised him from the dead, he would not have been satisfied with what Christ accomplished on the cross. But he proves that he is satisfied with God's, or with the death of Jesus and the redemption he brought by raising him from the dead. So it secures our hope. Since Jesus was raised and glorified, our faith and hope is in God. God raised Jesus, he's going to raise us. So this secure hope is not like our living hope. It's secure. We know it's going to take, God's going to take care of it because he raised Jesus from the dead. One more, look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. It means set him apart. He should be number one in our life. Everything else is second, third, and fourth. God is number one. Jesus is number one. Our families should be second. And whatever else you want to put in third, fourth, fifth, that's up to you. But number one should always be occupied by God. Set apart Jesus. Sanctifying, that's what the word means. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. Let's stop the word defense. We get our word apologetics from that word. You should be able to defend the faith of Christianity. Someone asks us a question about God, we should be able to answer it should be able to defend our faith. But it's more than just that. This doesn't mean you have the ability to argue with someone. You know? I can argue with, with the evolutionists. You know, I can argue with someone who doesn't believe in Christ dying on the cross. You know, I can argue with that person and defend my faith. It just doesn't mean we have the ability to argue with someone. It's much more than that. So what does Peter tell us? To make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. What do you think Paul's talking about there, or Peter's talking about there? He's talking about your Christian life. The hope that is in you. What hopes do you have? 
God's word is sure. God is coming back for me. Jesus took him, died on the cross for my sins. I'm sure of that. I know it's true. So can we defend that? The hope that is in you. Are you going to heaven? And someone asks you, and you say, I hope so. What's he going to say, person thinking? Oh, you hope you're going to make it? Why are you hoping? When we say, I hope so, it's a certainty, right? I know so. So here Peter says, to make a defense, everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, with respect and kindness. You big dummy, don't you know nothing? No, you're respectful, you're kind. I remember when I first got saved, I knew nothing about the Bible. I thought Job was job. You know, I got a job. Yeah, I didn't know what it meant. And people were kind and considerate and helped me along in my Christian life. <clears throat> so the Christian life should be attractive. Our daily Christian life should be attractive enough to cause those around us to notice a difference in our lives. What makes you different? It's because of my hope in my Savior. That's what makes my life different. When a Christian is asked about his hope in Jesus, he should be prepared to give a clear and convincing answer. That's what Peter's talking about here. A challenging hope. Are we prepared to do that tomorrow morning when we go to work? Is our hope in Jesus easily seen by others? Are we prepared to tell others about Jesus and what he has done in our lives? Someone asks you tomorrow, what did you do yesterday? What are you going to tell them? I went to church. Why? Because I love Jesus. He saved me. Now, are you prepared to give a good answer? Jeremiah 17, 7 tells us, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. You know, sometimes our, our hope doesn't, doesn't help us. There's a story of a man who spent many summers in Maine, was telling people about his time in a city, town, time spent in a town called Flagstaff, which was in Maine. They were building a new dam, and the town was to be flooded in a few months. And he said it's interesting to see how this town changed overnight when they knew their town was going to be flooded. In the months before it was to be flooded, all the improvements and repairs to the whole town were stopped. What was the use of painting a house if it was to be covered with water in six months? Why repair anything when the whole village was to be wiped out? So week by week, the whole town became more and more bedraggled, he said. More gone to seed and more woe be gone. That's his words, not mine. Then he added by way of explanation, where there is no faith or hope in the future, there is no power for the present. That describes the unsaved world, doesn't it? Why do people waste their lives by getting drunk, drinking, ruining their livers and kidneys, or taking drugs, or smoking, and you know, ruining your heart? I mean, why, why do people do that? You know, they're fed the false belief that when you die, you die, there's nothing left. See, without hope, there's no power for the present. And the Sadducees, Christians, who have no hope left, they still think. The situation is hopeless. Why do anything? Why go out and witness? Why invite people to church? It's a hopeless situation. There's another story about a man who's a self-made millionaire. His name is Eugene Land. He was asked to speak to the sixth grade class in Harlem, New York. And he thought, what am I going to say to a bunch of kids who don't even relate to me. I'm white. They're black and Puerto Rican. They're not going to listen to what a white guy has to say. So what can I tell these kids to encourage them? They're all basically living in hopeless situations. So he told them, though he went there, he told them about himself, his life, how he became a millionaire. Then he told them this. Stay in school, and I'll help pay the college tuition of every one of you. Now, does that brighten up a person's life? Imagine all these sixth grade kids, for all they got in front of them is living in Harlem and living with nothing, gangs, drugs, or whatever it is. But if you stay in school, I'll send you to whatever college you want to go to and pay for it. 
Do you think their life brightened up a little bit? Story goes on to say that 90% of the people took him up on his offer and went to college. See, at that moment, the lives of all those students changed. For the first time in life, they had hope. One student says, I have something to look forward to now. Well, I wish someone had made that offer to me when I was in high school. <laughs> Goodness, I would have jumped at it. And that's what happens when Christ enters your life. Your hopeless situation now becomes hopeful. Now there's meaning to life. Now maybe I can accomplish something through Jesus Christ. That's what hope does for us. And hope for the holidays, it started way back in Bethlehem in that day when Jesus was born. He brought hope into the world. So how's your hope today? Hope it's strong, secure, firm, and whatever other adjectives we use to describe it today. Next week we'll continue our study in the life of David. We'll be looking at Absalom and his rebellion. But think about hope for the holidays. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. So thankful how you brought hope into our lives through your salvation, Father. And we think about those without Christ to have no hope, who live in a hopeless situation, that maybe today, maybe this week, the hope will become apparent in their lives when they hear the gospel message and respond to it, Lord. As we read in Peter 3.15, are we ready to give an account of the hope that is within us? And I pray, Lord, I believe that all of us are believers here today. They'll think long and hard on that. Are we ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us? To share our faith with someone about Christ. Lord, I pray to give each one of us opportunities this week. And I pray we'll not fail in that opportunity. To tell people about our hope in our lives and invite people to church, Lord. And witness to them. Lord, be with us. We go our own separate ways. Keep us safe. Keep us alert of your presence always in our life. And let us live in anticipation of that day when you will come again, the blessed hope. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing joy. That's what we're singing? Let's sing it. Nature sing, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and heaven and nature sing. No more sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse Christ did bring joy to the world, didn't he? Remember, tonight's communion, 6 o'clock, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Then we're going to help clean up, so if we can stay and help and do that, we'll be grateful. Thanks for coming. Matt, will you dismiss us in prayer, please?